0: We're your health and safety angels, Daisy Silcock and Lindsay Mason. Health and safety. Busting the barriers. On a glorious sunny day in July of this year, 2023, in a very tranquil spot in Aberdeen, Scotland, surrounded by an array of multicoloured roses, a passage was read out. As they worked to draw out of the deep the hidden treasures of God's good but dangerous creation, they paid with their lives the cost of warmth and comfort of our homes and the ease and swiftness of our travel. They are not to be forgotten. Following this passage, 167 names were read out. Fondly remembering the friends, grandfathers, fathers, sons, husbands and colleagues who were killed hundreds of miles out to sea following an explosion on board the Piper Alpha. In this special episode, Health and Safety Angels are going to be discussing an incident which occurred on the sixth of july nineteen eighty eight. The catastrophic explosion which took place on board the Piper Alpha oil and gas platform. Now we're very lucky today um, to be joined by one of the survivors of the disaster, that's a gentleman called Joe Meenan who was a scaffolder on board Piper Alpha. For this episode it's just going to be me, Daisy, um, who's going to lead this one. Now I did at the beginning of my career work in the oil and gas industry and I was connected with a platform that was called Piper Bravo. Piper Bravo was effectively the replacement for Piper Alpha. Oil was discovered in that particular part of uh, the North Sea in 1973. It was a 12 square mile reservoir. So huge amounts of oil was discovered under there. And at the time of the Piper Alpha disaster... A third of all UK oil actually came from the platform. In 1978, they began uh, pumping gas as well. Now, some of you will know what happened on board the Piper Alpha. Some of you may be old enough to remember, recall it. Some of you may be involved in the industry. Some of you listening may also be survivors or family members of those who were on board. And we're going to do... Or I'm going to do my utmost uh, to to ensure that throughout this podcast, we're going to be as respectful to those family members and also the 167 souls that were lost that night. I've done as much research as I can um, into this and there's huge amounts of information out there. So if you're not aware of what happened uh, there is a lot of information that can be found. In fact, a full investigation was launched by the government and a report by Lord Cullen. A hundred and uh, sorry, a 488 page report is also still available on the HSE website. So let me just tell you a little bit about what happened on board the Piper Alpha So late in the evening on the 6th of July 1988, there was a series of explosions which took place. The initial explosion was significant enough that actually it caused serious damage to the communications on board the platform, um, as well as things like fire pumps and lifeboats. And these explosions which took place resulted in the platform being fully engulfed in fire. And and, and over the next few hours following this explosion, the platform ended up toppling, the majority of it ended up toppling into the sea. 165 crew members and two rescuers died, and 61 others uh, who were on board, as well as other rescuers, were injured and, of course, mentally traumatised by this incident. Um, This was the world's biggest oil and gas disaster, and it affected 10% of the UK oil production at the time and led to huge financial losses, which would be the equivalent of about £2 billion to this day. Now, we're going to be talking to Joe, and uh, we're, we're... going to hear about him. We're going to be here. We're going to hear about um, what led up to this disaster, what happened on the night, and also how his life has panned out following the disaster. We're not going to be focusing too much on the whys and the wherefores, but needless to say, if you imagine this Oil gas platform, and at the time it was um, pumping gas. There was two other platforms that were in close vicinity to the Piper Alpha: the Tartan and the Claymore. And both of these pumped gas to the Piper Alpha, and then from Piper they went. uh, The pipelines ran 110, 120 miles under the sea to an onshore processing plant. Now, if any fire or explosion took place you have this hundred and odd length miles of pipeline full of gas explosive substance so if anything ever ruptured those pipelines then this would be absolutely catastrophic and you can imagine the voracity of the fire that would rage And that's exactly what happened on that night in July. Now, in Lord Cullen's report, he spoke about a couple of things which I just wanted to point out. Um, The first one was that he identified that there was a generally sort of superficial response to safety issues on board the platform and with uh, the organisation that ran the uh, Piper Alpha he also said that platform personnel and management were not prepared for a major emergency such as that that had happened on board. Now, there had been a fire on board Piper some months before the actual night of the disaster. It was a much smaller incident and it had been dealt with. Everybody had been rescued. Everybody was safely uh, got off the platform where it required the fire was put out. And actually, there was various other safety vessels that were in the vicinity of Piper, such as the Tharos, um, which is a sort of uh, another sort of mini platform, as it were, that was designed for safety purposes. The Tharos actually had on board um, water cannons that it could effectively pump seawater and direct those at the Piper Alpha if there had been a fire. There was also um, other vessels in the vicinity, such as the Silver Pit and also the Sandhaven as well. But when the initial explosion took place, because it affected the radio room, there was no way for Piper to actually contact others. And in fact, it was one of the other vessels that was in the vicinity of Piper, which actually made the original Mayday call. So this year marks 35 years, 35 years since this catastrophic disaster. And you might be thinking, Daisy, why are we talking about something that happened 35 years ago? And in fact, Piper Alpha is something that as a safety tutor, I still talk about to this day. The reason we talk about it is because what happened in the past helps us determine what's going to happen in the future. It helps us to protect others from having to go through what the families and loved ones and people like Joe had to go through following that disaster. It helps us to take safety more seriously. And in fact, following uh, Lord Cullen's uh, investigation, new legislation was brought into play, as well as the requirement for the HSE to oversee offshore health and safety. Now, I know that you're all going to be moved by what we talk about this evening, and I wanted to just let you all know that there is actually, if you want to find out more, there is actually a charitable trust that's been set up by some of the survivors and some of the families of the Piper Alpha disaster. If you go to poundforpiper.com, you'll find out more information, including links to the Lord Cullen report. And you'll also notice there that there is a memorial garden in Aberdeen, which has a fabulous sculpture that was designed um, by an artist who actually had been on board the Piper Alpha before the disaster, as well as a beautiful rose garden, a real tranquil, peaceful spot where loved ones can come and remember what happened and remember those that are lost and they do have a just giving page as well if you'd like to help with the upkeep of that memorial garden. So visit poundforpiper.com if you'd like to find out more or perhaps make a small donation. So, hopefully, that gives you enough of an overview. Um, obviously, this is a huge incident. There are lots of documentaries that have been produced, films that have been produced. And there's lots of information out there, including a beautiful um, film that was created by an organisation called Step Change in Safety. Um, So that's well worth having a look at as well. But there is so much information on this. So if you want to find out more, um, there is lots of information out there. So I think without further ado, I think it's time that I stop talking. And that we introduce Joe. So I've got Joe here with me. Hi, Joe. Hi. Thanks for um, agreeing to this. Can I ask you a question straight off the back? Yeah. Why, after all these years, because it's 35 years this year, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Why, after all these years, do you still agree to do these kind of interviews and so on? Uh, yeah, it's uh, obviously a
1: huge part of my life. I do do uh, presentations regarding my experience on Piper Alpha. Uh, I describe myself as a, a safety impact speaker, so relating to workforces and uh, try to get over the message of uh, uh, the consequences of being involved in uh not only a disaster but any kind of fatality at work or serious injury at work it can have a huge effect on people's lives uh going forward
0: yeah i mean does it does it sort of hurt the same as talking about it now or, or as time goes on does it make it easier to talk about
1: i've never really been a uh, shy of talking about what happened to myself. Uh, I do believe, uh, and it's just my own personal thoughts, is that uh, you're better facing up to these things head on and uh, not try to shy away from it. Obviously, that's only my experience. I know a lot of other people rather not. Some of my other colleagues that survived would have rather not spoken about Piper and what happened. Mm-hmm. But eventually, I think it's the best thing to do. And even some of my closer friends, I do see each year, uh, eventually when they did speak about it, it was a great re- relief for them to yeah. eventually, yeah, get, get it off their chest.
0: Yeah. So can I can I go back take you back if possible to before piper Mm -hmm. and so young joe because how old were you how old were you when the in in 1988 i I I shouldn't be asking you this should i no
1: no no no. that's not a problem uh i was 29 uh yeah i was 29 when the disaster happened and i was 30 later that year
0: okay so Taking you back to like young Joe, where are you from originally, Joe?
1: Originally from Glasgow.
0: Okay. And when you went to school, what what did you want to be when you were when you were grown up? What were you oh, thinking of?
1: A footballer.
0: A <laughs> footballer. <laughs> yeah. Would that would would that have been Celtic or Rangers?
1: Uh well, yeah, a preference would have been Celtic, but uh <laughs> Yeah. Uh I did, I was okay, uh, probably just okay, but as you're a young lad, you think you're maybe better than what you are, but I did play for the school teams and reasonable, I got to a reasonable standard, but uh, yeah, kind of once work came in and once I left school and then you started going out and you started doing other things and <laughs> uh, yeah, socially wise and then yeah yeah kind of i forgot about football and uh just kept working
0: so so you went you went to school and i take it you did like what your hires or whatever was it would that be no
1: i left school and, and when i when i at that time when as soon as you came 16 you could either either leave in the winter you know at the christmas holidays or if if you were Sixteen after that it, you had to wait to the summer holidays, mm-hmm. so I was sixteen in the, the November, so I, I left school at the the Christmas holidays that year and oh, uh, so that would been that been well, let try get massier. uh that must have been seventy two I think something like that
0: okay and what did you do when you first left school? What was what what was
1: the job? What did I do? Well, I was working for a, a milk delivery uh, company. And that's when people used to get milk delivered to their doorsteps. And I'd done that before I left school. And then they offered me a job once I left school. Because I left school without any qualifications. Okay. And... Uh, yeah, I never got an apprenticeship in art at that time, so I just carried on working for them guys and managed kept doing that for about two and a half years or so.
0: So, how did you get from doing delivering the milk,
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: to being a scaffolder? Because that's what you were, wasn't it? You were yeah, scaffolder. that's
1: correct. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So, and so, how
0: did that happen?
1: Well, what happened? I was born in Glasgow. In when I was seven, my parents moved up to a place called East Kilbride, which was a new town. So I moved up, we moved up there, and it was great up until you were kind of 16, 17. Uh, back in that days, there was a lot of uh, kind of gang problems in for you know, that group of people at that age. So, what I actually done, I, I, I stopped working at the the milk delivery place and went. Uh, I knew somebody that was, had worked a season before in Jersey in the Channel Islands, so I decided I was going to go with them. I got a bit adventurous and went to Jersey when I was 18. And yeah, I worked over there a few different jobs. And I ended up working for a scaffolding company, but I wasn't actually scaffolding, I was just delivering uh, materials and such like. But in between that time, Daisy, my mum and dad moved from East Kilbride to Stonehaven, where I live now, which is 15 miles south of Aberdeen. Mm -hmm. And my dad was in the construction industry. And he got a job up in Solonville, which was the Shetland Islands. It's in the Shetland Islands. So the completely opposite end of the UK. And... uh, I'd lost my job in Jersey because I'd broke my leg playing football. Uh, and then he, it was, uh, he, he advised me or, or encouraged me to move up to working up in the Shetlands. And I got a job as a trainee scaffolder up there. Okay. So I was three and a half years up there. And that's where I learned my trade as a scaffolder.
0: Okay. So your dad was in construction as well. What did he do?
1: He was a steel erector.
0: Okay, okay. So um, you're up in the Shetlands. How do you then get out to the North Sea?
1: Uh, yeah, well, yeah, that would have been just the next stage. Uh, the Shetlands. It was actually they were building an oil terminal, Sullomvoe, oh, okay. up in the Shetlands. Uh, all related to you know North Sea oil. So yeah, uh, living in Stonehaven, met some other people that had. Uh, that were working offshore and then scaffolders up in Solonboa, some of them were going going to be working offshore. So it just kind of progressed from there.
0: Because around, I presume, around this sort of time that we're talking about, this is kind of not that long after they'd actually discovered oil at the you know, at that site. Because that was yeah. in the sort of early 70s, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's when kind of they were starting to, get production going i think it was yeah. kind of mid 60s to late 60s that they actually discovered there was oil in the North sea. yeah uh, but yeah yeah you're correct the early 70s uh that's when yeah the oil was starting to get produced and uh yeah get developed uh the the oil rigs and platforms were going out on location and stuff you know then uh yeah, it was getting into full swing then, you know.
0: So who were you actually, when you worked on Piper, who who were you actually, who was your employer? What...
1: Who was, we were working for a company in Aberdeen, which was a scaffolding company, but they were subcontracted to the maintenance contractor on Piper Alpha, who were in, contracted by Occidental Offshore. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah... Uh, the platforms that most of the platforms, because I'd I'd worked from 1982 to 1988 offshore, doing, and I'd been on a number of different platforms in the North Sea, who were operated by different oil companies, but oil companies actually only employ us maybe about twenty percent of the the men and the women that are working on, on the platforms, you know, work directly for the oil companies. It's mostly contractors and subcontractors.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, you worked for this company and you'd obviously had experience, as you say, if you'd, if you'd gone offshore from sort of 82, you'd had experience working on platforms and stuff. So you yeah. kind of knew what to expect about life offshore. Yeah. And how did you find kind of safety at that time, working in 1982, because I've got to be honest, Joe, that was the year I was born.
1: Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm <laughs> <all. laughs> okay. Don't
0: you, don't you hate it when people do that?
1: <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Everybody, <laughs> everybody's everybody got to be born sometime. And, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: Um, so, I mean, what was, I mean, because you obviously, you keep your your, your hand in, in health and safety now, as you say. You, you go mm-hmm. and talk to people and, and you kind of keep your ear to the ground of what's going on. What was it like, realistically, back then?
1: Realistically, back in in kind of eighty two, right through, uh, just depending what oil company or no platform you were on, uh, they were they were all reasonably similar, but some were more.
0: Uh,
1: I'm more strict about safety than the other ones, like you know what I mean. And okay. I don't really want to mention any no,
0: no, any, any but company,
1: was, but yeah,
0: Occidental they, one of those companies or not?
1: Occidental would have been at the lower end, okay. yeah, or well, at the bottom of the okay, yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> right, okay. Um, yeah, because of course, as we know, there are lots of different companies that would have been operating at that time, and obviously, the fact that you'd had that other years experience Mm -hmm. you you had you had a bar to kind of judge it against didn't you
1: yeah that's right and and can I tell you Daisy that what they all said was they all said to you because you used to have to do if it was your first time on a new platform you had to do an induction course run by the safety officer you know just to tell you about the platform and such like and the message uh, the common message between all the companies was it doesn't really matter what the uh, price of a barrel of oil is, it will never affect safety. Safety always comes first. In reality, that wasn't the case because in 1986, the price of oil dropped from $31, just over $31 a barrel, to less than $10. And that wow. had a huge effect, yeah. Mm. That had a huge effect on safety, amongst other things, offshore, you know, cutbacks, even the food you got served and such like, you know, uh, the standards dropped quite a bit because the oil companies were, weren't were keen, you know, to spend as much money as they were.
0: So the, the, the kind of outside message to, to the, the general public and anyone that's listening would have been that, safety first yeah but the reality was we've got to do everything to keep it flowing
1: keep it flowing and keep the profit margins at an acceptable level
0: Mm. in your just on that note just thinking about that when after the after the um disaster did you ever go offshore again
1: no i never went
0: from those that you know and conversations you've had, do you think that has changed, that attitude towards safety offshore has changed?
1: Oh, yeah, yes, yeah, hugely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the the, the uh, recommendations that Lord Cullen's public inquiry put forward were, uh, they were all uh, implemented 106 different recommendations and they were all implemented fully by the the uh, companies, oil companies remaining in Aberdeen. To sometimes, uh, some of my friends who still worked offshore, nothing never worked for me or anything like that. But some, sometimes of them says it was, you know, it was over the top. Sometimes in safety, they weren't able to do the things they used to do. Yeah, but you know. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was a huge turning point.
0: Mm. And, and it makes you wonder, or it makes me wonder. You know, if it hadn't been for Piper Alpha, would it have changed?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I often say that. Yeah, if it wasn't for the sacrifice of that 167 lives lost on that night, mm. how long would it have carried on in the North Sea till possibly? whether it happened on paper or happened on another platform, it had to take something like that to change the, uh, the regimes offshore. Right.
0: And the attitudes, I guess, as well, isn't it, towards safety? Because that's often the, I mean, from my experience, that's the biggest stumbling block, is actually getting people to wake up to the reality <laughs> of the dangers that they face.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I often say that to myself, you know, I was... I was uh, culpable myself. Always thought, well, it'll never happen to me, or uh, you know, it'll never happen when I'm working on the platform, or you know, and then I never even really thought too much of uh, a disaster of that consequence is happening. And you know, one of the th- one of the things when you were told you were going to another platform, and this was quite com- This was the main thing people said. Uh, when we found out, because you'd phone up some of your workmates, find out if they were going or who was going. And the first thing was, what like is the accommodation and what like is the food? That was the first two questions you asked <laughs> about, oh, sure, offshore. Yeah. And uh, seemingly nowadays, what what the first question is, is how good is the internet connection?
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, and, you know, so and we never asked about safety, You know, I never crossed my mind to, you know, what kind of history has that platform got? Because Piper had a bit of a checkered history, but I don't even know how I would have found that out Mm. back in that day, you know.
0: So the reason you went as a scaffolder, because obviously some of the people listening will have no idea what scaffolding has got to do with being on an oil or gas platform, was I'm assuming that you were there because of the major construction works that were going on at the time.
1: Yeah, that's right. But also maintenance work as well, uh, okay. easy because they had to get access underneath the platform, or had to get towers erected to reach certain, you know, certain uh, valves and such like that were needing worked on them. On them, we actually worked all over the platform from the bottom, which was called the spider deck, right up. Sometimes done some work on the, the derrick for the drilling companies and that as well you know just just wherever we were needed.
0: So that in itself sounds like some dangerous tasks there that would require pretty specialist training.
1: Yeah 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 we worked over the over the side quite a bit you know which which was over the water you did have uh, you were used an inertia reel and a safety harness you know so you were clipped on from above, Uh, but yeah, 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 it was, uh, I suppose, yeah, kind of maybe a lot of jobs offshore, but you just never thought about it, you just, that was your job, you just got on with it, you know.
0: So how long had you been on Piper, sort of, because obviously, uh, again, people who don't realise, you you kind of go on for a period and come off, and Mm -hmm. um, um so how long so when did you sort of first step foot on piper alpha
1: yeah so it was march of 1988 so and i worked two weeks on and two weeks off which was what most people done and the time july came around that was my fifth trip on Piper alpha
0: so in the in that you said about like inductions and things like that um and you would have got a safety and de- but you would have had to have done i assume um because you know when when i got involved in the oil and gas industry it was a long time after but um sorry i shouldn't mention time and age and stuff again should i no um but um one of the things you have to do is you have to get all the various tickets you have to sort of go inside the big swimming pool and and uh, you know rescue <laughs> yourself and i mean was that was that that the, the, the same at the time? Did you have all that those sort of various tickets and bits and pieces you had to do?
1: Yeah, yeah, I had to do my survival course before I first went offshore. And I think I only done one uh, refresher for that. But yeah, that was a lot more intense uh, back then than what it is now, I believe, you know. Mm. And uh, they even brought in for a while just doing it by doing your uh, refres- refresher virtually nowadays oh like gosh. you know wow. yeah so uh, yeah that's not so not so good I don't think but yeah yeah we've done all that uh helicopter ditching yeah yeah swimming pool uh inflating life rafts and such like yeah all that stuff
0: so all that was in place so that kind yeah. of I guess sort of you practiced it and everybody who got on that helicopter had had done all of that stuff and had got their tickets, and you know that that part of it was done. Yeah, um, so then you, you're there. Um, you're you're this is sort of March onwards. Um, and on this particular occasion, where were you in your two week turnaround in that, you know, leading up to the 6th of July? Where,
1: yeah, well, the 6th, that... the 6th of July was a Wednesday, yeah. and we had one more shift to work on a Thursday. And we'd be flying home on the Friday morning. Oh. Myself and uh, I, I was sharing a, a a cabin with three other scaffolders, so four of us in a cabin we were all flight we all would have been flying home on the Friday morning.
0: And then there would have been a changeover and another lot would have yeah. come on. Okay. So um tell me about what you were doing then around that time on that, on that stint that you were there. It was because it was almost the two weeks, wasn't it? What what were you up to in that, in that stint of time that you were on board?
1: Uh, yeah, well, it was really quite busy because there were, the paper was partially shut down. Uh, it wasn't really producing gas. They were still doing drilling work and such like. which to be honest, I didn't really know too much about the drilling or anything like that, but, uh, because Piper was the main platform, it was the heart of the, the oil field, and it had three other platforms with oil and gas pipelines feeding back to Piper. And then Piper was the main pumping station and had the main oil and gas lines going back to Flotta on the, on the Orton Isles. And that was an oil terminal there that received the oil and gas from uh the the paper oil field that was it was actually
0: so you were having a fairly typical time at that point,
1: yeah, yeah, pretty much we worked a fifteen hour day and uh, yeah, just yeah, just kinda just got on with what we were doing it was it was quite busy because uh, we had more scaffolders we normally just worked with 12 scaffolders on the platform but uh, it went up to 15 18 and then 21 and then on that day the 6th of july another three scaffolders flew out that afternoon
0: wow okay so um let's go to the sort of build-up of what happened then so I presume you weren't working at, at this, because this is like sort of 10 o'clock at night, isn't it? So I presume you're not working at that point.
1: That's right, yeah. So what, what we've done on the day, we just worked, and we were get, starting to get uh, quite excited about getting home again. Yeah, yeah. So the other three guys uh, and the, on the, uh, that was are sharing a uh, cabin with, uh, we knew the movie was on that night, and it was Caddyshack, so... We decided, oh, yeah. We, yeah, we were going to, later on when we finished work that we were going to go and up to the cinema and, and watch that. Uh, so just during the day, meeting up with other guys at breakfast time, and then at tea breaks and lunch lunch and such like, just oh, all right, what you's doing tonight, guys? All right, all right, and just people were doing different things, but the majority says, all right, we'll go up and uh watch Caddyshack. So. We had actually been working till nine o'clock that night, Daisy. So one of the guys got away just about quarter to ten to nine, because the four years in the one cabin, and they only had one shower and such like. Yeah. So, and then the next guy got away, it was working with me just, just five minutes after that. And then I was last to leave, and it was just then get a quick two minute shower, get changed into your casual clothes, and head to the cinema. So that's, Where, what, that's when. I, what,
0: where was the cinema? Where was it? Sort of, because because you know, again, the layout of oil and gas platforms has changed, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but but Piper, if I'm if I'm if I've done my homework correctly, you had like the drill floor, and then everything was above that. Is that right?
1: Yeah, but yeah, the cinema was kind of uh, 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 it was over on the east side of the platform, just below the crane pedestal. On the east side of the platform, so if you're looking at a photograph of Piper, the two flare booms they were on the south end of the platform. So if you can work out for there the accommodation and the heli decks were at the north end of the platform, mm-hmm. and west and east, you know, so just before, just below the uh, crane pedestal of the east. East uh, Crane. That's where the cinema was there, and it was quite a, actually quite a neat, and decent sized cinema. and It was quite nice, actually, one of the better, better uh, points on uh, recreational points on paper.
0: So, how many of you were in the cinema watching the movie?
1: Yeah, well, I, there was maybe eight or ten of us, but okay. it was quite busy that night. But it, the, I think the cinema kind of held around about forty people. And I would say it was like three quarters full, and it was yeah. And the movie just started just after nine o'clock because that was uh, the new people were start, uh, still working till nine. So it started kind of between five past and around about five past nine. Uh, so yeah, it was really quite busy. Uh, it was good fun. It was. Uh, everybody was enjoying the movie, you know, the The atmosphere was really good, everybody was laughing and enjoying the movie, you know, and then uh, just before 10 o'clock, we heard some extreme, what, what sounded like extreme flaring off of gas and okay. such like. And just at that point, uh, well, a cinema, uh, sorry, a silence fell over the cinema and there was people just having queried looks at each other and stuff like that. You,
0: but you, you, as a scaffolder, probably what you didn't didn't know what the sound was. Or, oh,
1: well, we had a, we had an idea. Yeah, it was, okay. it was it was quite extreme and it was really loud. You could hear it over the noise of the movie, you know. Okay. And like I seen people were having curious looks at each other. But then it just it, it just it dissipated after a few seconds. And the noise just started getting up in the cinema again. You know, the atmosphere started getting going again. But then it it started up again, but even more intense. And you could actually feel the power coming through the floor, coming through your seat in the cinema. And then all of a sudden there was a huge explosion. And the whole platform rocked back forward. Part of the roof of the cinema fell in. Lighting fell in. And then it actually fell into... Pitch darkness, you know, because the the power had failed. Then, within maybe four or five seconds, the emergency lighting came on. There was an initial panic in the cinema, and uh, but then once the, the lighting came back on, people were right, right, everybody, like lads, let's get let's get in an orderly fashion in here, no. Let's get in an orderly fashion and get back into the uh into the accommodation area, so we got in an orderly fashion and got back into the accommodation
0: because that that's where you would have been taught to muster in the event of an emergency
1: well the, yeah well kinda it was getting out the cinema because that was an enclosed area, so I actually got out the cinema I'd got separated for the the guys I was with. My first thought was to get to my muster station, but my my muster station was located where the lifeboat was, you know, and all the lifeboats were stationed at the north end of the platform. So I thought, right, I'll go over to the west side of the platform through the through the accommodation area. Uh, and uh, when I got over, there was people coming back from the west side saying, no chance, you can't get to your lifeboats that way, it's the too much smoke, too much fire. Same as tried over on the east side of the platform and uh, that was the same over there as well. It so was, by
0: this point, did you know what had happened? Okay. No,
1: no. And okay. Actually, unbeknown to us, because there was no alarms went off, there was yeah. no noise went out, but unbeknown to us, the main control room on the platform got totally destroyed in the initial explosion. So therefore, they weren't able to put out any uh, any alarms or any uh, noise. So when people aren't getting told what to do or where to go, it just adds to a whole lot of confusion. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite, uh, you know, people not being directed to go and do possibly what they should be doing, it, like I say, it just adds to a whole lot of confusion and uh, people just doing whatever they think is best They do.
0: So you went to, headed towards the east side?
1: Yeah, and it was the same, Kim, people not, coming back from there saying, no chance, you can't get out that way as well. Uh let's say, unbeknown to us, the, uh, the initial explosion, which was in the gas module C, was uh, so intense that it actually uh, blew debris through into module B, as far as module B, which was the oil recovery module, and it fractured crude oil pipes. So that led, that that, uh, that Was the basis of the fire was uh, crude oil, which created really thick black toxic smoke. But uh, without being outside, we didn't realise. It's only when you see pictures afterwards, you know how bad it was. uh, Yeah, if you'd went outside in that uh, kind of atmosphere, you would have been overcome within one or two, three minutes possibly.
0: So where did you where did you try and head to after that then after you you know you'd said couldn't get it to the west couldn't get to the east mm-hmm. where well, was next yeah
1: I kind of I just was kind of wandering back and forward not really knowing what I was going to be doing and uh, I would like got separated through the my work colleagues I was with and uh, eventually people were heading up towards the galley and the galley was just situated below the heli deck, And the galley was supposed to be a safe area. With uh, It was fireproofed, uh, and it had a positive airflow inside it, so there shouldn't have been any smoke or fire i got in. You know, like I say, it was a designated safe area. Mm. Uh, maybe after six, seven minutes, I got up to the galley, and I was standing there was a reception area before you went into the galley this the reception area was where you would if you came back offshore daisy that's where you'd go and check in and get your you know whatever uh cabin you were staying in or whatever Mm. had some seating area and that but they they had double doors there into the galley and uh i got up there and opened one of the double doors and I was looking in, and the emergency lighting was still on at this point. And there was maybe I thought maybe seventy, eighty men in there, and uh, but I didn't really know what to do. I was just standing there, and there was nobody was really saying anything or speaking at all or anything. Most of the men were sitting on the floor with their backs to the wall, or kind of lying on the floor, leaning on their elbows. And then all of a sudden, I was holding the left-hand door, the double doors open. And the next thing, this guy burst into the the door next to me on the right-hand side and shouted out, is there anybody here from Bordens? And somebody recognized his voice. Bordens was the drilling contractor. And somebody recognized his voice and shouted, we're over here, Mark, come over here. So when I heard that, I thought, well, that's a good idea. So I shouted out. Is there any scaffolders here? And the men and my work colleagues I was with earlier on heard me shouting out, so they shouted me, and that was actually they were at kind of the opposite corner of the galley, adjacent to the uh, kitchen area of the galley. There was a little dry store adjacent to the the, the uh, kitchen area, and they shouted me to go around there. And as I was walking around there, uh, stepping over people and such like, I passed the OIM and the safety officer, and the OIM is the offshore installation manager, and somebody shouted out to him, call and tell us what's going on.
0: So they were just, sat, they're just sitting in the galley?
1: They were just standing. They were the only two people that were standing up. Yeah. And somebody shouted out, a wee bit more forcefully than that, you know. Yeah. But I shouted out to the OIM. and as I passed them, I looked back, and unfortunately, though I am, he'd been uh, he he had froze. He'd oh, been okay. take he the, the this situation was too much for him. He just actually froze. He couldn't see anything. He was just staring straight ahead. And the safety officer says uh, there's, there, there's been a May Day sent out and there should be helicopters here within the next half an hour to 14 minutes to uh, come and pick people up. So just wait here, guys. And How did if, he
0: know that, though? Because you said the radio room had, in that first explosion, the radio room had gone down.
1: No, that was the control room.
0: Oh, the control room, right, yeah. okay okay. There
1: was a radio room in a converted container just beside the Helideck. That was the that was a radio room and the Helideck landing office, you know, in a converted container. And just after the first explosion, uh, David Kernard, he was a radio operator, he put out a May straight away and then actually abandoned the platform himself, he ran across to the north side of the, the platform uh, sorry, the north, yeah the north side of the platform but on the heli level and jumped off from there uh, there was also maydays from the Tharos which was alongside uh, or was our, our support vessel yeah. uh, and some of the other ships that were in the area sent out maydays as well uh, but I, I do know there was, that, that they knew that, uh, that a media had been sent out, like, you know. Okay, okay. Uh, so I progressed around there, got around to the back where the rest of my work colleagues were, and there must have been maybe about 20 of them, 20 men sitting in that area, roughly 18, 20, but they had all wet dish towels, over their noses and mouths. So and was it was it smoky at that time? Yeah, yeah, it
0: right, was. Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah, it okay. was. Uh, it, it wasn't too bad, but it, it was getting. Yeah, it did. It was having smoke in it. Uh, probably getting worse as it got on, mm. but uh, they said you'll get a dish towel up at the sink, Joe, because they had the big industrial sinks there for the catering staff for washing all the pots and pans and plates and such like so I grabbed a dry tissue and just by instinct I turned on the tap and then there was nothing, no water coming out of the tap it's just actually starting to really sink in, I mean here now that there's no water, there's no power there's nothing on the platform, there's nothing to fight this fire with it's starting to really sink into me that we're really in a bad situation, but there was water, still water left in the bottom of the sink, so I soaked the dish towel in there, and went back down and sat with sat with the other guys that was sitting there. Like you say, mentioned about the smoke. The smoke was actually getting more intense. The uh, the emergency lighting had failed by that time.
0: So it was. So it's. I mean, it's it's ten o'clock at night, so it's mm. dark. It's dark outside, and so it's dark in the galley as well.
1: Yeah, but the, we were actually getting light from the flares. From the, uh, right, yeah, the yeah. flare booms, and which was quite extreme. Uh, also, that far up in the middle of summertime, it was. It wasn't completely dark. It wouldn't
0: be pitch black. Yeah, no. Yeah.
1: No. Uh, and. Uh, but I sat down with the guys, and you could, let's say, then you could hear other small explosions happening. You could hear grinding noises, which we didn't realise what was happening at the time. Like, like yawning noises, like metal twisting, hearing glass breaking, and such like. And we said, "Well, do we know what's happening? Does anybody know what's happening? What we're we going to do?" They said so they'd been. Two of the firefighting team had been up to the back door of the galley with uh, breathing apparatus on and their their uh, protective uh, clothing on. They were going to see if they could find any escape routes and they were going to come back and let us know, but they were never ever coming back. And let's say we're sitting there, I says, well, if we stay here and anything else happens, we're not in a position to be able to do anything for ourselves. Why don't we go outside and go up onto the heli deck, and maybe see? Then we'll have a better idea of what what's happening. So after a few seconds' of discussion, that's what we decided to do. So uh,
0: the, this this was just your group of scaffolders that decided yeah, to do that. Yeah,
1: pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so the other
0: the other people, like the safety officer, at this time were they still in that? Were they still yeah, they or? were
1: still in the other okay. other part of the galley.
0: Uh, and all of the people that were in the galley, from obviously, you know, you could barely see where you're going, but was anyone there obviously hurt at that time?
1: No, 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 not as far as I could uh, see. No. Okay. No. Okay. Uh, no, everybody that was in there was fairly, yeah, uh, injury free. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, Let's see, after a few seconds of discussion, we decided, a group of us decided, yeah, let's go. And as we were leaving, there was six guys, I was last to leave, there was six guys who were working for a a communication company who had been there upgrading communications, satellite dishes and such, like phone lines and stuff on paper. And we had done work for them, so we knew who they were and that, like, and... uh, I say I was last to leave and I asked them, they weren't moving, they were still sitting on the floor. And I says, you guys coming with us? And they said, uh, no, uh, we've been told to stay, so we're just going to stay. Just kind of, they looked at each other and thought, no, we're just going to stay. So, okay, good luck to you guys. And we left and, <coughs> climbed up to, onto the heli deck above the galley. And, uh, that's when we realised how bad the situation was. I fully, we could fully see how bad the situation was. You know, you uh, would have come out.
0: You would have come yeah. outside at
1: first, this point. Time, yeah. first time. First yeah. time. First point outside. Exactly. Uh, so what we done from there? We went along the heli deck and that, uh, the radio room and the heli deck landing office. We climbed up on top of that. See, it was like a converted container. And that was the highest point we could get to in that area. And we could see this thick black smoke coming, but there was kind of like breaks of between the smoke. It was coming across in waves. So you could see when a break of this and some fresh air or clear air was coming. So we all stood up and uh, managed to grab, uh, get some uh, fresh air, uh, gasp in some fresh air. Mm. before the next layer of smoke came over. But also when we were up on top of there, the Tharos, which was off the west side of the piper, had a water cannon right at at the top of one of the crane jibs. And that was fanning back and forward. And that was actually catching us on top of the the, uh, helideck landing office. Uh, And it was soaked all our clothes and our hair and such like. Uh, which I believe later on saved me from being more badly injured. But at that point, somebody suggested, why don't we go over to the west side of the platform? Maybe the Tharos could move a bit closer, lay that crane jib down on uh, the emergency heli deck. We could climb onto that and climb down onto Tharos, which was just totally getting a bit bizarre at that point. But it was, yeah.
0: Just, just to say, when so when you come onto the heli deck, was there other people there or was it just you? No, lot it was
1: just time? us, just our group, yeah. And okay, okay. So let's say it was 12 or 14 of us headed over to the west side of the platform and we were waving down at the Tharos and I'm, you know, we, we were waving down at them, but I'm sure they could see where we were. And we just got over there and then all of a sudden the, the riser from the Tartan platform, mm. as you would have seen on that documentary, fractured, Uh, and just engulfed the whole platform. We, at just that point, everybody just jumped back and forward, just just jumped back, and we were all on top of each other. He didn't actually know what had happened, but he just knew something horrendous had happened. Uh, And then people started getting up from that pile, and then everybody just scattered in all different directions. Not another word was spoken. And people just run away, and I myself run over to a to a radio mast and climbed on through the ladder onto that, which was taking me up vertically. Just but one, if I'd got to the top, I wasn't going any further. I don't know why mm. I'd I'd done that. I, it, it possibly could have been panic, but I didn't feel as if I was panicking. But as I was getting higher up this ladder, the heat was getting more intense, and then I slipped, and I just thought to myself, "Well, that's uh, I'm dead here." But kind of just at that point, whether it was a will to survive or uh, or somebody looking after me from a higher being, I had no idea. But I just come down that ladder, down the level below the heli deck, run along to the access stairs that would take you up onto the heli deck if you were leaving the platform or down below if you were arriving on the platform, run across to the north side of the platform, that initial, that or that second explosion, Daisy, that, that had cleared all the thick black smoke away, mm-hmm. so you could actually see down to the sea then, so I knew exactly what I was doing. Uh, but it was like an outer body experience it was like watching myself doing what I was doing and I had a life jacket on at that point took the life jacket off through and in front of me took a few steps back and I was using I knew I had to use the uh, supports for the safety net and that went around the heli deck to try and push myself off as far as I could uh, and I took a run so like I say, I knew exactly what I was doing, but it was it, it, it was like an outer body experience. It was as if it was somebody else that was doing it. And I took a few steps and threw myself off. And then it was only at that point I came back to myself. And that's when I thought, well, what the fuck have I done? And then not another thought till I hit the water.
0: So had you seen other people do that? Had you seen other people jumping? No, not that, made... that point. No. Okay, so this was just you going. This is the only. This is. This is. This is. You know, I'm gonna. I'm gonna die on on here. I I, I need to get off.
1: Well, that 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 was that was my thought. I thought I was going to die, and then from that point to throw myself off the heli deck, it was like somebody else was making me do what I was doing. It's really a weird situation and I've, I don't even try to try and work out how that happened. It just happened and I just kind of accepted it. But I can only think it was a will to survive or possibly somebody looking after me from above. I have just no idea. But everything I'd done from when I thought I was when I say to myself, oh, that's it, I'm going to be dead here, hmm. uh was just like a natural instinct to do what I'd done. No no actual thought went into it, if that kind of makes any sense. Okay. I'd just done what I'd done. And it wasn't any so conscious, conscious thoughts about doing, you know.
0: Because I, I was going to ask you, what what made you decide <laughs> to, to take your life jacket off and throw that but you're probably going to say you don't know why you did that either
1: well i i have been asked this a number of times when i do oh, okay. presentations <laughs> and i the only thought i can put back to is when i was doing my survival course
0: yeah you know
1: and they, i always remember that that they told you if you uh if you jump from cuz you used to at the pool when you done your <coughs> your pool stuff you were always, you, you had to jump from, a, I think it was two and a half metre board or something. And they says to you, the, the instructor says to you, if you jump from any higher than that, any, any more than 10 metres with a life jacket on, you, you'd probably kill yourself with the force of you hitting the water in the life jacket, you know, it would come off or come up and break your neck or something just
0: like, yeah you break your
1: yeah. neck yeah yeah, yeah. or yeah. do other some some other kind of damage so that was the reason i never thought about it at the time but that must have been the reason i did do like that
0: conscious thing
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: so how high up just so people can get the kind of enormity of when you say jump into the water uh-huh. because this is a lot more than your survival course um how high up are we talking?
1: Yeah, well, that was 175 feet, that level. And uh, it kind of took between five and six seconds to cover that distance from the heli deck till I hit the water. So that gives you an idea.
0: And in And in that five seconds, that's when you kind of realised, what have I done?
1: Just initially, yeah and then not another thought came into my head after that till i hit the water Uh, if you're
0: jumping from 175 feet you're gonna go very deep down into the sea yeah when you hit the sea yeah um so even that experience in itself could have been enough to have ended it all couldn't it yeah not being able to get back up
1: yeah absolutely yeah, uh, yeah, I, I do. I don't know how far I went down, and obviously it was a bit disorientated. But the light from the fire above gave me a reference to get back to the surface, mm. so that's where I headed. Mm. I remember getting back to the surface and a huge gulp of air in, and then I just was kind of having a look about, and I looked to my left hand side and there was a life jacket floating in the water next to me, and I can only imagine it was a life jacket I threw in in front of me. So I I stuck my arm through that. Like I said earlier, all the lifeboats were stationed at the north end of the platform, and at least one of them had been blown off in that second explosion, and part of the roof of one of them was floating in the water next to me. So I kind of wedged my arm in that, for just buoyancy, and I started propelling myself away for the platform. But another thing that was on my favour that night, Daisy, was it was a beautiful summer's night, and you often got that offshore. almost flat calm, but the sea was running from south to north that night, and uh, we're at like a half a metre swell. So that was in my favour, me going off the north end of the platform. Mm. That was taking me away from the platform. On that summer's night, Daisy, it was a beautiful uh, summer's night, and the sea was running from south to north that night, which was going in my favour. So that was taking me away from me going off the north side of the platform. That was taking me away from the platform. So that was in my favour
0: in in any of the the i mean i know the answer to this but in any of the emergency training practices anything like that you'd ever had other than the survival course where obviously it's predominantly talking about if something happens in the journey to and from i mean was there ever any discussion conversation about jumping into the sea off of of the of off the, off the platform
1: no, no, never. That was that was kind of that was one of the probably one of the things that you were advised not to do yes. to, to get into the water because yeah. uh, the water temperature, you know, the hypothermia would set in fairly quickly. So uh, yeah, that was never. That was never ever. Well, I say, probably. You were advised or, or or told, yeah, no, that that would be the wrong thing to do.
0: And and I presume that the sea that night, you know, with it being July, kind of was in itself a bit of a blessing because if it had been a, a winter or something, it would have been. You probably wouldn't have made it out.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. It was. Uh, it, it it was. You know, if you could say that was a right time of year for something like that to happen. Yeah. But most of all your big shutdowns and major construction work got done in the summertime offshore mm-hmm. because that was the the weather window, you know, the the time where you have the least bad weather to get work done, you know. So
0: so you said before, sorry to just take you back a minute, it's just come into my head. So you were talking before about when you were in the galley and then there had been no alarms, there had been no kind of... No noise. No noise. So at no point had you actually been told you need to abandon ship, as it were.
1: No, no, nothing, okay. nothing like that. And if you... Uh, If you go by what the safety officer said, that was the opposite message, was to just stay where you were.
0: Mm. Uh, Probably at the time that you jumped off, those others were probably still in the galley. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And possibly starting to be overcome by smoke inhalation Mm. by that point, you know? Uh, Yeah.
0: So. You're in the sea, and you're holding on to your life jacket. What happens then? Yeah. Who who, who who rescues you?
1: Well, what happened from there was I was, propel myself away from the platform, and then I noticed that the rest of this lifeboat had been blown off. The platform was floating in the water, with uh, half of its roof missing. So. I disregarded the stuff I had. Swam so over to the lifeboat, which was what what was left of it. Climbed, mm-hmm. pulled myself up into the lifeboat, and I was looking back at the platform, just trying to really take in what I was witnessing, and thinking, God, if there's anybody left on there, they're just they're not going to make it, uh, and. Everything was kind of happening so quickly. I was sitting on the rim in the lifeboat and I looked down at my my arms and my hands and I noticed I had these huge blisters on my arms and hands and I couldn't really figure out how that had happened. But like I say, everything was happening so quickly. There was a fast rescue craft, inflatable fast rescue craft coming towards the lifeboat. Uh, they came over, they got me into the fast rescue craft and lay me along the side of that. They asked if there was anybody else in the lifeboat. I said no, and kind of that's when my injury started taking effect on me. And then I was in and out of consciousness for the next kind of half an hour, 40 minutes. I just remember little bits and pieces between between that and them get me onto the Tharos. Uh, rem-
0: when, on, when you were on the... Um holding on to the light whatever was left of the lifeboat did you see others in the water no
1: i never mm-hmm. seen anybody else again till uh till actually i was in the hospital the next day yeah.
0: so the pharos the getting onto the pharos which as you say was that kind of um the 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 sort of vessel that was next to piper
1: yeah that that was a support the, vessel yeah
0: yeah and they were the ones that obviously had, as you, you explained before, they had the sort of water cannons, as it were, yeah. firing on, you know. Um, and so they also had quite a lot of, um, quite a sort of uh, um, sophisticated medical unit there as well, didn't they? Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah, they had a small, I think it was six bedroom, six bedded, uh, what a triage uh, facility, you know, uh, the Saris was a multi disciplined support vessel, so it could be used as a, a dive vessel. It could be used as well. It was mainly mostly for accommodation, but it had firefighting capabilities and it had that six-bed kind of small hospital unit on it. Uh, uh, and, yeah, when... When the fast cra- rescue craft picked me up, it was from a supply boat, and they took me back to their supply boat. Kinda of just remember them getting me into a stretcher, and then winching me onto the supply boat. And then a bit later on, I don't know how long it was—twenty minutes, half an hour—I remember them. They, they used the crane to attach the the stretcher onto, and they craned me back onto to the Tharos. Uh, I remember getting into the small hospital facility, and uh, there had been medics arrived from Aberdeen at that point, and I mm-hmm. I was going into shock at that point. I remember shivering and just kind of getting all you know worked up and everything, and I just remember one of the medics saying, "Just give him a shot of morphine," and I just remember getting that, and I was you know that calmed me down and everything.
0: And the and the the blistering that you had on your your arms and your hands at this point that you can feel the pain now.
1: Well, once yeah yeah, but once I got the morphine, I was I was kind of well, okay no, after of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yes. Yeah.
0: Um, but but before that, you said that when you'd got onto the rest of the fast rescue craft, that was when you could really feel like.
1: The, yeah, ham. that that was more from the fall. You know what I mean? Hitting the water and such like. You know. Uh, Just the adrenaline had stopped, you know, so Mm -hmm. uh, and I kind of just fell in and out of consciousness for the next, you know, 15, 20 minutes, whatever it was.
0: So from the Tharos, I mean, when, when you were on the Tharos, you said it was sort of six bed kind of like triage area. Yeah. At that point, were there others there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay and did it did you recognize anyone
1: no i never cuz kind of everybody was like covered up we had uh, like uh uh you no know, like uh foil covers you know to keep you like warm sh- yeah to yeah. keep you warm and keep you protected yeah we had blankets over our heads and well covering part of our heads and that I never I knew there was other people I was aware of other people being there you know other people being uh that were injured in the close area but uh never really recognized anybody at that point
0: did did the others that you did see were you aware of sort of how injured they were and how hurt they were or
1: no no I can't say I did I just remember it was uh, it was very intense you know it was a, a high level of uh emotion going on between the medical people obviously a fair bit of confusion and stuff and uh uh but highly highly you know uh, charged atmosphere where people try to do their best for for the people that uh, you know that were needed needed help
0: and that- at this point did you know what had happened did you know anything more than you'd known before uh
1: no no, no. not at that point uh no uh just knew well this the somebody kept coming i was i was actually desperate for to drink water but they were only wetting my lips and that just i think it was just in case you needed to get any you know to be operated on when you got mm-hmm. to the hospital, but uh, yeah, I just remember being well. It would have been dehydrated also, like you know. Uh, but I just, that was my biggest urge was to get water, to get fluids, you know. Mm.
0: So then, in the sort of what, what was it, the early hours of the next day, you were.
1: Yeah, like, I was trans- choppered up, yeah, to Aberdeen. Yeah, yeah transferred by helicopter to back to Aberdeen and that was in an accident and emergency but that was kind of the same it was highly charged it seemed as if it was you know uh just absolute chaos but i'm sure it was like organized chaos you know The uh but yeah after a while i just i was like stolen and out of consciousness there and then eventually i remember being up in the up in one of the wards uh in the hospital
0: and were there others there? In
1: there was only me and Roy Carey that was in this ward. It was just a two, two-bedded two ward where uh, myself and Roy, I didn't know Roy at the time beforehand or anything, so, yeah, everything was just a bit confused. There was a lot of people. There was police. There was press. There was, you know, press trying to get in. Uh, there was... Uh, hospital staff, obviously. Uh, I just remember somebody told me that my mother had been notified, and she was on the way, or on the way to the hospital. So she was one of the lucky ones. She knew that I had survived. Uh-huh. So I just kept myself going till mm-hmm. my sister and my mother arrived at the hospital, and then over the next two, three days things were just kinda of much pretty much a a blur, you know. I was on oxygen, I, uh pain killer, uh painkiller injection straight into uh catheter on and everything, you know, so uh yeah, I was just pretty much uh, kinda of out yet for a couple of days.
0: And so the time you said before you were twenty nine, so uh, we I presume you weren't married or anything at that point. No, I wasn't. No, I was. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Hence, why it was your mum that came to visit you. Yeah. Okay. And your sister.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Did anyone from your company or Occidental or anyone like that come and visit you as well?
1: Not, not straight away, but maybe after a week. Because I did know that the scaffolding company I worked for, I didn't know the the senior management fairly personally as well. Like, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, just, but I don't know if you know, Daisy, the uh, Prince Charles and Diana and that came up and Margaret Thatcher. But that ward myself and Roy Carey were in, after the first couple of days, the, anybody that was coming in, it was, well, it, it just, it was a, immediate family only for like the first week or so. Yeah. But when they were when they were coming in they had to wear gowns and hair you know caps for the cover of their hair and masks just in case there was any uh any chance of them infecting myself and Roy. So it just you know we're still you know quite susceptible we were not really out the no, you know, out of the woods yet, you know, we were still uh, a chance of us maybe not making it, you know what I mean?
0: So what treatment did you have, Joe?
1: At, the, uh, at uh, that what, point... Did
0: you, did you have to have any operations or
1: anything? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it wasn't till maybe a week or so, maybe even 10 days before we got the first operation. It was just really... Uh, you know nursing of our injuries Uh, uh, the first couple of nights three nights anyway we we had a a nurse stationed at our bedside during the night you know obviously uh, things back then weren't quite as sophisticated as they are nowadays so it was a nurse sitting beside your bed, just keeping an eye on you. Uh, to make sure everything was okay during the night. Uh yeah, we yeah. I f- had a fair bit of smoke in my lungs as well, so I had to I had to get that out of my lungs and stuff like that as well. So yeah, it was maybe let's see, maybe seven, eight days before I got so I had to get four operations for skin grafts uh under general anesthetic and then I got another three operations after that uh, under local anesthetic.
0: And these are on your, your hands and your
1: arms. Yeah, that's correct. And and that's kinda that's how I, I didn't realise that's how when I looked down at my arms when I was sitting on the lifeboat and seen these huge blisters, yeah. and I couldn't work it out that was that was burns I'd received. And after speaking to the uh, surgeons, you know, after a few weeks being in hospital, surgeons came along one day and they said, "Right, let's try and work out where you got your, how you received your burns, Joe." And Took them through the same story I've told yourself, Daisy. And they said, Well, we we're a hundred percent sure it was during the fall you received right. your burns and we maybe let my arms flaring behind me and I only had a short sleeved polo shirt on and that was the reason for the blisters being on my arms. If you know what I mean. Yeah, just that yeah. five seconds or so and it was just it was heat radiation. The temperatures were that high, Mm. and I explained to them that their clothes got soaked by that water Mm. cannon and such like. And I said, "Do do you think that saved us from being more badly burnt? You know, if if our clothes had been dry." And he says, "Yeah, pretty sure you would have been more badly burnt if that was, you know, if your clothes had been dry." So just Mm. that little bit of water. Oh nice, no, You know it, what? What a difference it made.
0: And probably on things like your hair as well.
1: Yeah, I, my, my hair was soaking. Yeah, mm-hmm. mm. and I I did have hair back in that day, like you know. So.
0: <laughs> this is a podcast; they can't see that. But just <laughs> pretend that you've got full <laughs> Kevin Keegan locks going on. You know? I
1: used to. I used to have Ke- Kevin Keegan locks actually.
0: <laughs> so, when. When did you find out that? When did you find out that um, that 167 had uh, hadn't make it?
1: Yeah, eventually, after a few days, maybe what, five. I I kept asking for TV and such like, and then obviously other people coming in to see and asking what was going on, you know, and then. Then some of the guys that were in another ward in the hospital came through and the nurses were obviously giving us information and such like. Never knew it was 167 at that point, but they knew that it, it was way over 100 men that never had made it. If four years in the cabin we were in, two of, two of us survived and two two never survived. So one of the other guys that had survived, he was in the hospital. And I'd known Billy, Billy Clayton since I first went up to Southern back in 1979. <coughs> so he he was able to give me some information in the hospital, maybe the second week or so.
0: And had had he done the same? Had he jumped yeah. as well?
1: Yeah, he had, yeah. He was with us up there. Uh, he was uh, part of that group. It was up in,
0: uh, and and R- Roy, who was in your room with you, had he jumped?
1: Roy, uh, Roy was a employee, at Occidental. Uh, he was uh, uh, instrument technician. Roy was, had been working till nine o'clock that night as well. I think he would be working a wee bit later. So he actually he got off more. Towards the southern end of the platform from a lower level. He wasn't actually in our group, but where he got off the platform, the way let's say the way the sea was running that night, he kinda got pulled back under the platform and he thought he thought his head was gonna explode, the temperatures were that high, the heat was so extreme, and he tried to dive down and he thought he, he says it on that documentary, Daisy thought the easier way of dying would be drowning instead of, you know, thought his head was going to explode. But eventually, he, when he came up, after two or three times, he was far enough away for the platform. But Roy was very badly injured and uh, Toby's head and such like.
0: So you, you were, I mean, how long were you in hospital for? Uh,
1: just over six weeks.
0: Okay, and then you went home back to your mum's?
1: Uh, yeah, I had to stay with her. I, I'd actually had that my own uh, flat in Stonehaven at that point. But yeah, I had to go back and stay with her for about uh, a week to 10 days, you know, just for cooking stuff and meals and stuff like that. Like, you know, so uh, I was still quite, heavily bandaged up at that point because i was going back and forward every day well the five days monday to friday i was going back and forth to the hospital and then it kind of went down to every other day and then it went down to every third day and stuff like that over the next three four weeks like you know
0: and when when was it that the kind of the i mean i presume you have scars but when was it that your the The physical treatment kind of ended, and that was you were kind of signed off as it were from oh, okay that side of it.
1: yeah uh, all in all that was almost almost two years okay because I had a lot of physiotherapy to go through uh get skin grafts and such like it was uh your skin can shrink and that so I had to get a lot of Physio on my hands and arms, and uh, even the dexterity on my fingers and such like had to not learn how to use them again, but had to, you know, do exercises to get everything going as well as it could again. Like you know, so.
0: And what about the other side of it, Joe? What about the um, the trauma of what you've been through? Yeah, I mean, what, what? When did that? Set
1: in, yeah. Well, it's always been there, Daisy. But uh, like I say, I've I've never shied away. I don't go out and speak, tell people what I, mean, I do nowadays. But back in that day, I didn't tell people what I felt sorry for myself. And now oh, this, I, I as kind of one of these persons would have to, uh, uh, you know, face up to things. Uh, tackle things head on you know what I mean so that was my attitude towards it and it was quite tough the the first Christmas time was the the hardest uh, uh, Christmas of 88 Uh, I just broke down that Christmas morning and uh, yeah everything just had caught up with me by that point and I just sat there and cried but I was on my own it was Maybe one of the best things I've done, you know what I mean? And I just got it all out of my system.
0: But it still upsets you now.
1: Well, yeah, still there's still certain, still certain elements of it, yeah. Uh, uh, but like I say, you know, it's uh, it's something I think you have to, uh, you know, face up to and come in terms with. And that's easier said for some people and it's easier done for some people than it is for others, you know. Uh, I think one of the biggest problems and certainly some of the people I've heard from or been told of later on was a lot of the people that got off the platform early, early that night before the second explosion, they were either work, or probably working night shift and there was 19-year dive crew on Piper. And they were all out on the platform in the lower levels. So they got off and got into the water, which was the right thing to do, because there was a lot of sea traffic in that area at that point. And got picked up and got changed into uh, dry clothes and such like on the Tharos. But the worst thing they'd done was go and watch the rest of the disaster unfold. And... I know a number of them said they wish they'd never witnessed, you know, what they were seeing, because uh, that's come back to haunt them. Mm.
0: So uh, you, you, we talked before. We said about the um, finding out about the severity of how many people had been lost that night, and obviously some of your colleagues, quite a number yeah. of your colleagues. <laughs> um, and so you. <laughs> I'm assuming that you went to the funerals of those, you know, colleagues and such?
1: I did a wee bit, but most of them were uh, within the first few weeks. Uh, Mm -hmm. Daisy, so we never actually, because we were still in hospital when these funerals were taking place.
0: So you never got to go? Never
1: got to go. I went and visited a few of the graves afterwards, but uh, no, I never managed to get to the funerals uh, when they were actually happening because Gosh,
0: that's re- that's tough, then, isn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah, it was, uh, yeah, really sad. Uh, yeah, especially two or three of the guys I was really quite close to. Yeah,
0: and. How did how did Occidental and how did the the other companies how did they deal with this afterwards were they were they great at providing support did they I mean what what happened from that side of it? Uh,
1: I um, yeah, to, I think Occidental. Uh, I don't know if you know, but um, uh, the head of Occidental. A guy called Doctor Armand Hammer, who lived in Texas, I think it was. He came over uh, and had to front up to it. Uh, he put a million pound, or the or Occidental Oil Company put a million pound into a disaster fund, and also the government at the time done that as well. And it just smacks to me of kind of guilty conscience. Is and uh, but I believe Occidental had a strategy quite you know, they worked out quite quickly afterwards and said about let's get everybody let's get all these compensation claims, let let's get everybody looked after, get everything done quickly and they made their way out the North Sea themselves, you know, sold and- sold their assets.
0: So did you get compensation?
1: Yeah. Yeah, we did. Yeah,
0: including the obviously the families of those that lost as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. There okay. there was talk about going to America, because it was an American company, and trying and take them to, to court over there, because the you know, uh, the compensation in American courts is much higher. You know, with punitive damages and such like, but. They quickly made it quite clear that they were they would fight that all the way. You know they would do do their best. So what actually happened was that they came to a what they called the Mid Atlantic Agreement. So it went from one to twelve, and uh, there was like five or six different categories. You know what job you had, what was your your future prospects, how many dependents you had, what was your physical injuries, what your what was your psychological injuries and it, let's say it went from one to twelve and it was that was decided by the I think it was the Lord Advocate or the Dean of the faculty in Scotland who decided, you no, know, got all the reports done and decided, you no, know, uh where you were in that scale and obviously the higher up the scale you were, the more money you got. would have got. Yeah.
0: And did you have to sign an agree you know, like a non-disclosure
1: agreement no, that, that you wouldn't no, tell anyone. No, no no non disclosure uh agreement or anything like that. But uh yeah basically once it was decided that's what you were getting, you know, or or even beforehand you agreed to, you know, what was proposed, then you had to stick by that, like, you know what I mean, and you couldn't uh you know that's appeal true. that or anything.
0: Can I ask Joe? How much she did get in compensation?
1: I'd rather not say, but it was it, 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 it was.
0: Do you feel it was enough?
1: Uh, well, you know, you could say what uh, what is there ever ever enough, but uh, mm. you know, me, uh, I'm meeting two of my fellow survivors, Billy and the other guy Dave Lambert, next week, and we've we have spoke about this uh, many years ago. And we meet up in Edinburgh, and because uh, one of them comes from Newcastle and one of them comes from Middlesbrough, so and I'm from just South of Aberdeen, so Edinburgh's kind of halfway for us all. And we have spoke about it, not money wise, but we say, well, and it was Dave Lambert who says, Well, we've got to realise we're, we're all still here to he speak about it, so maybe that's yeah. the biggest, you know biggest payment uh, we've got to be happy with you know
0: on just thinking about that then joe did i mean do you did you ever feel guilt i mean they talk people talk about survivor's guilt don't they Mm -hmm. did you ever feel guilty that you had been one of the 61 that had had survived
1: Uh, i kind of certainly went through a bit of that Uh, And it was that same, it was that same Christmas morning, Daisy, but I looked and I, I had to go and have a look in the mirror at myself and I just had to say, and quite simplistically I said, and I thought to myself, well, if I hadn't survived and I knew some of my fellow work friends, colleagues had survived, I would be wanting them to go and grab this second chance of life with both hands and just, you know, make the best, to, you know, like this second chance of life. So that's kind of how I justified it to myself. Quite mm-hmm. simplistic, but that would be, I would be wanting people to do that, you know? Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: So that's how I, I...
0: You said that next week you're meeting up with some of the other um survivors, some of the other guys. Yeah. And and is that something that you've always done? Is that something that you I mean uh, as a group, I mean I guess you're bonded for life, aren't you? You've been through something like no other experience. That's
1: right. Yeah, but it's it's just actually two other two other colleagues of mine, workmates of mine. Uh uh yeah, yeah, well pretty much apart from obviously COVID and such like uh uh, can't I can't mind It, it did, didn't happen straight away, but maybe three, two, three, four years afterwards, and we we started meeting. And uh, yeah, and now it's getting—it's uh, actually happening twice a year now because uh, both Billy and Davy are a wee bit older than me, so we don't know how much longer we'll be meeting up. You know, whether not, not for any sinister, you know. Reasons somebody passing away, in but you know, but you know it's just getting a wee bit harder with everybody getting older. Like you know that, I think Billy's twelve years older than me, and Davey's about eight years older than me. You know, so uh, yeah, Uh, yeah, it's great to see them. And I I do know some other survivors from this area also, but we've not quite got the same bond as uh, as as them guys like or us guys.
0: Is is there any? Of the survivors who who just like I I don't want to meet up. I don't want to come to reunions. I don't want to come to memorials. I I just want to forget it. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if you uh, know There was two suicides within the first five years, and that was put down to survivors' guilt. And this other guy, Mark Reed, who was the guy that burst into the the gal area beside me. I know his son now. Mark was twenty-four at the time of Piper, and he died at the age of forty-eight with alcohol-related illnesses, and he suffered terribly with post-traumatic stress disorder. And what he used to do was go away and drinking binges, uh, and that—that's how he kinda tried to forget it, tried to lose himself in in drink, and everything caught up with him, and he. Let's say twenty four years later, he died of alcohol related illnesses.
0: I I I, honestly, Joe, I didn't know any of that about any of those. Mm -hmm. Um, and that again, it kind of it it's that side of it. It's like the the, you're talking about the compensation before. That's the bit that you just can't. How can you know when you're sat there putting a price on you know injuries or. Mm -hmm what job you did. I mean, how can you put a price on that? Because it is going to haunt you. It's going to be there forever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, And some people like you, you know, you seem very pragmatic, even the way that you're talking about what you did on that night and everything, it seems very pragmatic. Mm -hmm. And it almost seems like on that Christmas morning, the way that you kind of looked at yourself in the mirror and said, just be bloody glad you're alive. Um, But others, of course, don't deal with things in the same way, do they? No.
1: Yeah, that's right. We're all different, and that's you know. When you I hear about these poor uh, veterans, you know uh, that you know suffer and they're homeless or whatever, you know, or they suffer terribly with post traumatic stress. And plus the other guys who have lost limbs and such, like you know, uh, mm. I've just got to think, well, God, you know, I'm I'm lucky. I've I've not had to go through. What a lot of them guys have went through as well, you know. So, uh,
0: well, you, you you mentioned before about the Cullen report and um, and and the the sort of public inquiry. I presume you were involved. You would have been involved with that, yeah, in some way. Yeah,
1: all all the survivors had to go and give evidence uh, at the public inquiry. Uh, yeah, I uh, yeah i I was fairly comfortable going to. I had to go and say my bit and I was, yeah, I was fairly comfortable going to do that, like, you know, uh, yeah.
0: And how, and after that, I mean, because that report is a hefty report, as you mentioned, 106 recommendations. I mean, how do you feel about then the fact that then nobody was, no organisation was actually prosecuted?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I do. Not so much way back in that day because I just, I I was just kind of wanting to get on and, uh, you know, move on with my life. But with doing my talks and stuff like that now, and people do ask me about that also, I would imagine it must have been whoever was in charge of the Scottish legal system back in that day. That made this made that decision not to prosecute anybody, because if you listen, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it, uh, Daisy. It's uh, it's a it's an animated uh, yes, remember Piper. paper. And,
0: yeah, and a yes, little, yeah, great, great animation. Yeah, and there's
1: a little bit at the end of that from Lord Sol- raw sorry, Lord Collins summing up and. He goes on about reports that had been done to Occidental from nineteen eighty four through, and uh, he says at the end these reports that were commissioned by Occidental themselves could go on to say, go on to describe exactly what happened in the, the disaster that night. So they knew all that they knew everything that was possible that could happen. I believe they never even shared it with their own personnel on paper. You know, the people that actually worked for Occidental on paper, all of which mm. was, yeah, quite galling, to be honest.
0: And that, you see, because to, to take it into 2023, which is obviously really tough to sort of, whenever you look back at disasters that have happened a long time ago and you try and look at it in today's eyes, it's hard. But, to me, that's a clear case of corporate manslaughter. Oh,
1: yeah, 100%. But if you also think everything that happened in the 80s as well, Daisy, the first mm. one I remember was the Bradford Football Stadium.
0: And that's another one, isn't mm-hmm. it? No no prosecution. Yeah, and
1: then you had Kings Cross also. Mm-hmm. You had Clapham Junction. You had uh, Hillsborough a year later. You had Lockerbie the same year. You had... Uh, the Herald of Free Enterprise, no Zebrugger. Yeah. There was yeah. so much yeah. going on in the eighties. Uh yeah. It was yeah. It's, it was a bad time.
0: And you know, because my my uh my dad, he was uh, he he would he was in a demolition at that time mm-hmm. and uh you know he talks about things well he would say, well, you know, you've seen those Fred Dibner videos. Yeah. Well, that's what it was like. That was what we did, yeah. you know. Um, and the the irony is we think that when the Health and Safety at Work Act came out in 1974, that suddenly everything changed and got incredibly safer. Yeah. But in an industry like the oil and gas industry, it was kind of almost, they were out on a limb, weren't they? They were kind of getting away with doing whatever they wanted, yeah. weren't they? Yeah,
1: that's right. It, and none of that... Uh health and safety legislation applied offshore up until after Piper, Uh, you know, because it was offshore, it was outside, uh, you know, 12 miles offshore, or or further than 12 miles offshore. For some reason, they got away without, uh, you know, being able to implement health and safety. It worked. Gosh, that's a big
0: loophole, isn't it? Sure was, yeah. Okay, so I think we've uh, we've kind of covered everything that I wanted to to cover, Joe. The only thing I wanted to ask actually was, what happened to your life afterwards? Because, uh, you know, you you could have, I, I guess, let this rule your whole life going forward. But w- what did you do with your life? Because you obviously said that you stopped working offshore in after the the incident. So what happened career wise, life wise? What happened to to Joe Meenan after okay, that? Okay,
1: right, well. I was, once I'd kind of fully recovered and everything and I always enjoyed traveling and I had family in Australia and I had family in Zimbabwe and Southern Africa and I kind of done a trip over to Australia and then went to Zimbabwe, yeah, over an eight-month period, which actually was quite good. I didn't realize at the time, but it got my way out of Aberdeen and this kind of, you know, environment here. Uh, which was probably a great thing. Done a number of things travelling after that. Uh, people I knew in Stonehaven had bought a, a hotel, uh, and uh, I ended up working in that and then got involved, and I was uh, I had a half share in that, and then I had the, I bought them out, so the hotel was mine. So it was hospitality and such like. After a while I sold the hotel and then just bought a pub here in Stonehaven also. And that kinda of got me through most of my work career after that, you know?
0: That's that's a massive change.
1: Yeah, it's huge. But I was kinda I was wow. I, I was kinda always a pub person, you know, like going to the pub okay. and social person. Yeah. So uh yeah, got married and uh 1994, got a couple of kids, grown-up kids now and that, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, progressed quite well after that, you know, and, uh, yeah, that's the way it's, it's went.
0: And you are you in your salad days now, are
1: you? I, uh, pretty much, I still do a little bit of part-time <laughs> work, but, uh, yeah, and plus do my other, my talks and stuff, such like, you know, for anybody that really wants to, listen to me it's been fairly successful and in a kind of quirky way I really enjoy the feedback I get you know and I really feel it's making a difference and that's the feedback you know that's from the feedback I get you know because obviously if I wasn't getting very good feedback and I wasn't you know reasonably good at it nobody would want me to go and speak to them you know so uh I do I do feel if I can make a wee bit of difference moving forward, then, you know, that's me contributing something back to uh, through my experience.
0: And I think, you know, so I've, I've been in safety for 20 years. I started out in the oil and gas industry, and I remember up in Scotland and then I went out to the Middle East, and um, no matter where I've gone, this is – talk about Piper has been something that has continued no matter where you go Mm -hmm. and then now because I teach self-safety you know even last week I was teaching a a group of students and again we were talking about disasters like Piper like Zybrugger like you talked about Clapham Junction etc and some people sit there and go why on earth are you banging on about something from the 80s or 70 i mean i even talk about go back even further and talk about stuff that that happened sort of early 900s all the rest of it mm-hmm. because and people think why on earth is she talking about these things from so long ago
1: yeah
0: sorry to harp on about that again no, yeah not yeah right um, but, you know 30 you kind of think why are we talking about something that happened 35 years ago and and i sit there and i say to them and i don't know if you agree with this but i say to them that the stuff that happened in the past is what helps us to stop it from happening again in the future.
1: Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Lessons learned. I I remember my first one of my first times seeing my dad really emotional was the Abergavenny disaster. You know, the landslide where, uh, oh, came, um, Aberfan. Aberfan is it? Sorry, right. And yeah, uh, it, yeah. yeah it came down and the the mm. the mudslide and it uh, engulfed the school, the primary school yeah. at the bottom of the the slag heap I think it was wasn't it you know uh, torrential rain and yeah that's the first time I remember him being really quite emotional Mm. and yeah it sticks with you you know and uh, like I say my experience is Daisy, when I've done this these presentations talks you know that uh, it seems to work and stick with people like you know
0: yeah no exactly well, thanks, Joe. Um, thank you very much for that. I, I think I've just got one other thing that I've written down that I wanted to ask you. Did you ever watch the end of the movie?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I've, been, I've been asked that a few times. Because oh, I was
0: thinking there, <laughs> like, have you been traumatized by that, that you never want to see that movie ever again? No. No. But you got to the end yeah. of it in the end.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, oh, definitely. God bless you. Yeah
0: god bless you joe um thank you ever so much for 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 talking to us i really really appreciate no it's
1: it's, yeah i'm quite happy and uh, comfortable uh speaking with you and you know if you can pass on some of the stuff you've heard from me then that that's fine that can that's good enough for me
0: thanks joe god bless